0: Story, the history of Noah. I have there for you a picture of what many believe is actually findings in Turkey of uh, the ark. And you can see the outline there. And uh, they found uh, evidence of rivets and pieces of wood. And uh, many believe that this is actually because it meets the dimension criteria, uh, it's actually the remnants of uh, Noah's ark. Uh, But that said, this this morning's message is outlined and called uh, Born Again. So as we begin this morning, we look at Genesis chapter 8. We remember that um, Noah has been called to build a boat. He's done so. And chapter 6 ended in verse 22, where it says, uh, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. So he chose a single man to live so that mankind could be again. And, and so we see essentially a second genesis of mankind and, and even animal kind as they're preserved in the ark. And so as we look at the second slide, I promise there's a second slide. My clicker's not working. Uh, we begin in Genesis chapter 8 where he has been in the flood and it says there after all of the flood has taken place in verse 1 it says, Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark and God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided." Verse 2 says, The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the hundred and fifty days, the waters decreased, and then the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Now, I said this last week, but interestingly enough, we, many believe that the book of Genesis is actually an allegory, and it's it spiritualized. But the problem that I take with that is that when you read it, when you read allegory, they never give specific details. You know that it's a word picture. You know that it's a metaphor. But in this case, there's very specific dates and times listed out. This was a set period of time that this took place. And what's interesting is that the chapter begins by saying, God remembered Noah. Now, the first question I have is, did God forget Noah? And the answer I would say is that no, God can't forget. What it's meaning is that God refocuses on Noah Because as he's been focusing upon flooding the earth to judge the earth, he was thinking about Noah the whole time because if he wasn't, there would have been no ship for Noah to jump on to be saved from the dissipation, the flood that would take place to wipe out all of mankind whose thoughts and intentions of his heart were ever so evil. And so God remembers Noah, which made me think of the book of Exodus in chapter 2, verse 24, where it says there that God remembered the descendants of Abraham. God had made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made promises to Abram who said, hey, I'm going to take you to this land, but there's going to be a time that comes forth in your generations after you where your people are going to be taken off to a place where they're not charged anymore. And for 400 years, the people of Israel the descendants of abraham had been allowed to taken to egypt and then made slaves and it might have been a temptation to think that god had forgotten his promise that god had forgotten that he had people that he left in this place of captivity and pharaoh was making them slaves and he was building his buildings with them as slave labor and so but what it says there in exodus chapter 2 verse 24 is that god remembered the sons of abraham so when God remembered the sons of Abraham, just like God's remembering Noah, he, he starts to act. He starts to prepare a plan of salvation. And when he does that, it says there that when he finally takes them out, we think about all the plagues and the interaction that Moses had with the Pharaoh. And he's, let my people go. And he goes, okay, I'll let them go. And then the Pharaoh goes, no, nah, I'm not going to let them go. And then God tells Moses, okay, let him know I'm going to plague him. And then we go through all these different plagues, and then Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart, hardening his heart, telling God he's going to do one thing and doing the opposite until finally God says, That's enough. And he delivers his people through miraculous events. And then as he brings them out, he brings them to the Red Sea. And it says there that they get nervous because they're at the edge of the Red Sea where the Shekinah glory of God had led them, not the Reed Sea to the north. But the Red Sea, an impassable place, and when he leads them there, they're on the edge of the waters, and and at the same time, the Egyptian army is coming up in chariots, chasing them through the wilderness. They're at the point of no return. What are they going to do? So it says there that the Shekinah glory, the, the pillar of cloud that had led them through the desert by day, got behind them, so that Pharaoh's chariots could not see them. And then in front of them, it says that God made a wind to come from and I can't remember which direction but essentially that caused the winds, the winds caused the, the, the sea of the Red Sea to depart, to, to part way so that they could pass through on what? dry ground. Does that sound familiar to today's story? As Noah has been in a ship on the water, where else can I go but remain in the ship? And then God says he remembers Noah, and then it says there in verse 1, he made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. He's making a way for life to begin again. And so the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain of heaven was restrained. I want to point that out in verse 2. It says the fountains of the deep, the springs of water that flowed forth from the earth's crust at that time, they were stopped. And the windows of heaven were also stopped. And then it says, and the rain, which is interesting because I think of the windows of heaven opening up, I think of rain. But what it says here is that the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain, implying that something was different about the, the, the water cycle at that time, where we know that it says that there had never been rain until the days of Noah. So it, it leads me to believe that the, the, the cycle of water flowing, you know, the, the, what do they call it in science class, where it's like it, it rains falls down on the ground and then it it goes through the the rivers and then it goes down to the to the ocean and then you know there's evaporation and then it goes back up into the clouds and then when the barometric pressure gets to a certain point it dissipates and then it falls from the sky again and it's just that cycle well before noah's flood there was none of that going on there was water reserved above the atmosphere there was water reserved in the earth And there was this like mist, like when you go to the grocery store and there's the fresh produce and they got that little misting thing. And it's just, you know, it's constantly keeping things fresh. Well, after the flood, there's rain, but in the midst of the flood, there was water coming from everything. God so flooded the world with water that it could not stop. It couldn't go anywhere. It couldn't be reserved anywhere. It could only build up. And so he stops the water, He causes the water to recede. And what I want to point out is that he causes it to recede gradually. The flood was overwhelming the earth, and then slowly the water recedes, has to find a place to go. And as it's receding, there's Noah in the ark, watching it all take place. And then it says there, in the end of our verses we just read, that God made the ark to rest amidst the mountains of Ararat. So what's interesting about that is that think about this, the ark is on this sea of water that's endless because it's on a globe. And as it's on this sea of water, it could have rested anywhere. But what it says is that God made the ark to rest on this place that he prepared for it. It wasn't an accident. This is like the lottery, except it's not the lottery. God's in control of where that boat is. He's intricately involved in the lives of the people on the boat. He cares deeply about the animals that are on the boat. And he cares even more deeply about the people that are on it, that he's preserved. And so he makes it to rest. So it goes from there, which I believe is God's perspective on what's going on on a global scale, to what's going on inside of the boat. Verse 6. So it came to pass... At the end of 40 days, that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And then he sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. So the raven goes out, and it stays out. It doesn't come back. This is a dirty bird. It's, it, ravens eat everything. They're scavengers. No doubt, there were floaties. And they'd go out and land on the floaties, and they would eat things. We won't talk about it. I'm sure it was disgusting. But at the same time as this, there, there's all these things out there. He's he sent out a raven to find out if there's anything, any place for it to land. But after he sends out the raven, it says in verse 8, he also sent out from himself a dove. Now, if you know anything about scripture, the dove is a symbol of peace. And it's also a clean bird. It's one of the ones that they were allowed, poor people would give a dove instead of a an oxen or a lamb. They'd be able to give a dove. But he sends out the dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. Dove won't just land anywhere. They're looking for a place that's safe. And so the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days. And again, he sent out the dove out from the ark. And then the dove came to him in the evening. And behold, there was a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So now there's exposed ground long enough that there's actually growth of plants. Notice also that the dove is a symbol of peace. But what is an olive branch a symbol of? also peace so there's peace and then there's peace and repetition is also an always an emphasis on that word so there's peace on the earth it's been cleansed so he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove again a third time which did not return again to him anymore and it came to pass verse 13 in the 601st year in the first month now when did he get on the boat He had just turned 600. Happy birthday, Noah. You get to go on a boat ride. How long? Well, this is the 601st year, so an entire year. If you do the math, it's around 377 days. I don't know about you guys, but a cruise sounds great. But I don't know about a year. A year on a boat with your family. I mean, you could take it. It'd probably be awesome. But I doubt they had water slides. (laughs) And at the same time, they've got their whole farm with them. The world's farm. And so he's on the boat for an entire year. And it says that it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah, it says, removed the covering of the ark and he looked. So he's already opened the window. Now he's removed the covering. And indeed, the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. So I want you to notice that there's a time period from which he learned after he sent out the dove that were, the face of the earth was dried. And then he waits another week and sends out the dove again, and then it doesn't return. So he's opened the window, he's kind of peering out, and then he, op- he takes the top off. He's got a convertible boat, apparently. He removes the top to check things out, and then he goes, yep, it's dry. But I also want you to notice that when he finds out that it's dry, he doesn't get out right away. He still stays in the boat. Why? I mean, if you're a pragmatist, you go, okay, God's going to flood the earth. And then I'm going, if it works, then do it. It's dry now. We can get out and start life again. But it it doesn't say that. It says that Noah remained in the boat. And in verse 6, it says that it was 190 days and six months before the rain even stopped or before the flood started to recede. And then it says in verse 6 and then 13, he opened the window and he removed the cover to look. So uh, the biggest piece of his boat experience was actually just waiting. And it's not something that we like to do. So much so that we will withstand food that tastes subpar in the microwave because we'd rather microwave it quickly than put a pot on the stove and have to clean it up afterwards, right? We all know that if we microwave food, it's not as great as if you cook food, but we still microwave food because we don't like to wait. The quality going down is a little, it's worth it to us. Um, so that points to me to the second thing. Waiting was a piece of his boat ride, but number two, watching. He didn't just wait. He also watched to see what God would do. He opens the window. He, he takes the top off. But number three, He's wondering, not wandering. Have you ever taken time to wonder at the ways of God, at how he makes things come to pass? I think that this is a lost art in our culture. We don't wonder anymore. We Google. We don't wait. We ask somebody that's already done it. We we don't sit still and be in the presence of the Lord and wonder, you know, I'm reading a book right now by Francis Chan and in there he says that if you're reading the Bible and you read a verse and it doesn't cause you to go I don't know about that I don't think you're really thinking about it because there's many verses that shouldn't make sense to us we should read them and go I don't agree I doubt that because that's reality we read things in the Bible and we go okay God said it I believe it but do we Are we really trying to grasp at the the things he's showing us? Noah knew that God called him to be on the boat. Noah knew that God said he was going to flood the earth. Noah knew that God said he was going to bring the animals to him in the boat. And I think that he probably wrestled with some of those things before they actually happened. But Noah didn't necessarily get told how it was going to end after the flood. So he's on the boat, he's waiting He's watching what God's doing, and he's wondering at the mystery that God is. God is a mystery. A mystery is, by the way, something that you can find out. It's not something that can't be found out. His ways are mysterious. But then in verse 6 through 14, as he's waiting on the word of God, Noah never got out of the boat. He never questioned why. At least, he doesn't say that here. But I wonder why he didn't get out of the boat before God said to Because the next verse says that then God spoke. A year he didn't hear the voice of God. And then God spoke. And I believe that while he was waiting, while he was watching, while he was wondering, he was opening up himself to hear from God. And even though God didn't speak, his ears were perked up listening to see when he would speak. And, and perhaps the experience of building the boat in the first place, the 120 years, perhaps it was entering the boat and then seeing God miraculously close the door had built his faith. Perhaps it was abiding through the storm and trusting God. Uh, perhaps it was resting in the midst of the storm that caused him to trust the Lord even more. The genius and just the dimensions of the boat. Think about it. If the dimensions weren't followed, perhaps the boat would have been tossed and flipped over because of the height of the waves. Um, It made Noah learn to trust in God's perfect timing and his faithfulness, perhaps. His timing was just right. They got in the boat. A week later, the flood starts. God's not late. He never is, even though it feels like it when we're waiting. And so, in verse 15, it says that... um, Let's see. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. And so God spoke to Noah, verse 15, and Noah was in the midst of waiting, watching, and wondering. And it leads to God revealing himself to Noah. And I want to turn real quick to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. And I want to point something out. Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the hall of faith. But in the midst of him recounting all these people who have gone before us, it says there in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes, or she who comes to God, must believe that God exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And I believe that we see in Noah a person that was sitting and waiting and he could really do nothing except wait. And yet what it says here, and it's going to show us, is that as Noah waited on God, he was pleasing God. Many times, I think that we think that we can only please God by accomplishing things, by doing things, by building things. By... And no doubt, Noah had pleased God. He was founded, found to be righteous by his acts. I mean, he built a boat by faith. But in the midst of this, you would think, well, he's a go-getter, he's a doer, so that's how his relationship with God is, and yet God calls him to do more than just build and do. He calls him into the boat and says, sit still. And I think sometimes we, we think that that's not something we're called to, but be still and know that I am God is a call to each one of us. Know that I'm in control. Know that I'm going to do something even when you're sitting still. And as Americans and probably Southeast Missourians, we don't think we're worth anything unless we're doing something and building something. Unless I can see my progress, God can't possibly be thankful for me or or be pleased by what I'm doing. And yet what we see with Noah is as he sits still, he was pleasing God. He was pleasing God in his resting. And so verse 16, he comes out. And I want to point out in verse 16 that it says, go out, not come out. If I'm in my house, my kids are in, if I'm in the yard and the kids are in the house, I would say to them what? Come outside. Get off your tablets. Shut off the screens. Let's go play outside. Come on. But if I'm in the house with them and I want to go outside and I want to take them with, what do I say? (laughs) Let's go outside. God's telling them, I'm with you. Go out. And he's been there in the boat with them. Maybe I'm making more of it than I should. But, but I believe that God is calling them to go out with him. And then he says, be fruitful, multiply, abound on the earth. That's the purpose. You've been saved, so now you can multiply. And in the Christian life, that's what we've been called. We've been called into the ark, and he's called us out of the ark. He says, go out, go ye therefore, right? Go out of the ark You know, Sunday mornings are great, but we cannot live our lives in our holy huddle. He says, go out, be fruitful, and multiply. He's no longer called to us about just having kids. He says, go and make disciples. Go and make, multiply yourselves, Multiply after your kind. As saved people, we should multiply after our kind and make other saved people by our testimony, by our words, by making disciples. Dana talked about that this morning. So God is releasing them, all creatures, to start again. He's creating a new biosphere. He's creating a new place for us to to develop and to grow And for Noah, this is a second birth because if Noah hadn't got into the boat, he wouldn't have lived. He'd been as good as dead. And yet as he comes out of the boat, he's being born again to a new existence, a new atmosphere, a new lifestyle, a new plan. So God's sending them out as for a new beginning. So verse 20, I want you to think about this just for a second before we read it. Don't, don't read ahead. Hopefully you already did, but don't read ahead yet. If you were caught for an entire year, maybe you had a surgery. Maybe you had to re- be rehabilitated, and you were not able to produce or do anything. God took away from you the ability to do the things that you feel you identify with. Maybe you're, you play sports, something broke, or you're quarantined maybe. Maybe your identity is what you produce. And God said, well, you know what? I'm going to allow circumstances. so You can't do those things anymore for a year. Not three months, not six months, not 14 days, not 10 days. You will be impotent from doing the thing that you feel is who you are. What is the thing that you spend most of your time doing? Think about that right now. What is the thing that you identify as? And God said, you can't do that for a year. And then he says, now you can do it again. What would be the first thing you would do if you were Noah and you got off the boat? Now you can go do the things that you identify with, the the things that you feel are are important. What would be the first thing you do? In verse 20 of Genesis 9, it says here, Noah began to be a farm, excuse me, that's chapter 9. Verse 20, then Noah gets off the boat, and it says he built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. Notice first what he didn't do, which would have made total sense. He didn't get off the boat and immediately build a house for his family that he loves dearly. He didn't get off the boat and immediately plant crops. They're going to need food. Probably out of supplies on the boat. He didn't get off the boat and immediately start multiplying all the animals that they could eat. Because they're going to get ready to, they can eat meat now after the flood, by the way. Awesome. He didn't get off the boat and immediately uh, start looking for flood insurance, right? (laughs) He could have looked for that, right? Hey, I need some flood insurance. He had the best. He didn't immediately get off the boat and go back to status quo, He got off the boat, and he worshiped. That was the first thing on his mind, which tells me he didn't feel like the boat was a prison. He felt like it was a sanctuary. Many people believe that church is a prison or that Jesus has imprisoned them and not allowing them to work one day of the week. Noah looked at a time of rest in the boat. He looked at it as a blessing to be saved and to be given a time of vacation, if you will. He got off the boat, and he took the animals. By the way, these are the animals they'd be able to sacrifice. They're the animals they'd be able to eat. Um, They're the animals that they could use, by the way, to produce more clean animals to eat, start production, get the farm going again. And the first thing he did makes no sense. He took the only clean animals, one of each and every kind, and he burned them. He burned them. And we might be tempted to say, whoa, 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 don't burn them. That's, that's a little crazy. You're wasting something we could feed each other with. But think about that. There's a story in the New Testament. I just read it this morning in Luke where there's a woman who had been forgiven sin and no one else really knew her other than she had a pretty sordid past. She was a, a harlot and she showed up and she took this big flask of perfume that was worth a year's wages or maybe even more, some suggest, she broke the flask, she poured it on Jesus' feet, and she doused him with it. And she washed his feet with her hair and her tears and this very expensive fragrance. And there was one man that said, Whoa, 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 that's kind of a waste. How dare you waste a year's. That could have been used. We could have sold it to feed the poor, which makes sense, right? But Jesus said, She knows what she's doing. She's anointing me for my burial. She's worshiping. So sometimes God calls us to forsake hoarding things or producing things, and he says, why don't you sacrifice? Give me of the first fruits and just worship me with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Noah offered to God of every clean animal and bird by fire. Simply, I would suggest why because he was thankful to have been saved. He was just thankful. God hadn't kept him from better things by putting him on the boat. He was protecting him from harm. So my question would be, how do you respond when God allows circumstances that keep you from your normal? Perhaps after lockdown was over, what was the first thing that you did? Was it worship? And Thanksgiving to God or did you go back to the status quo trying to make up for lost time and I would I would even throw out there that I after God locked us down and took away the normal the first thing I did after I got out was I tried to produce and make up for lost time and yet God's called us to worship him first he was thankful to have been saved and the question that I would have for you this morning is do you remember the joy of your salvation Noah gets off the boat, he saw the flood, he saw what he could have been a part of, the deluge, the destruction, the death, the imminent destruction. And he recognized he had been saved from it, and it gave him joy. The God, my creator, saved me from destruction. So when he came off the boat, he had this spring in his step, like, wow that God would save me amidst the, the people of the entire earth, that God would save me from the destruction that I deserved. Remember it said that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, undeserved favor. And in Psalm chapter 51, it actually says there where David has been forgiven of his sin. Do you remember what David's sin was? David had had an adulterous relationship uh, with another man's wife and then had him killed to cover it up and what david prays after repenting he he prays to the lord and he calls sin sin he doesn't say it was a mistake he just says i've sinned against you god and in psalm 51 it says have mercy upon me o god according to your loving kindness according to the multitude of your tender mercies blot out my transgressions Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, and you only have I sinned, and I've done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. David saying, if God would have smoked me after what I had done, he would have been righteous in smoking me. What is that for you? Have you remembered? I'm not talking about living in guilt of past sins, but do you remember your life before Christ and how much you've been forgiven of? And does that give you joy when you recognize all that Jesus took on the cross for your sins and he washed you, he cleansed you, he made you righteous in his sight? Because then he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in my inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. He says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that you... That the bones you have broken may rejoice. In order to be saved, in order to be forgiven, you have to first allow God to break your heart for what breaks his. He says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me by your generous spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I believe that Noah is a picture of what we ought to be as Christians thankful to be saved. Simply. Do you remember the joy of your salvation when you first recognized how much Christ had you forgiven you of? Are you lacking joy and the willingness to give of the first fruits? I would suggest to you it's because you've forgotten how much you were forgiven of in the first place. So as we go on, verse 21, he says, it says there, after Noah offered up a a sacrifice, a burnt offering, the Lord smelled a soothing aroma And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. He says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest will remain. Cold and heat will remain. Winter and summer, the seasons. And day and night shall not cease. That's God's grace. Every time a new season happens, that's God's grace allowing it to continue. Um, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night. Every time there's a new day, that's God's grace. I believe that the scientists are true and that we are destroying the planet. But I, at the same time, believe that that should cause us to worship Jesus even more because despite our not taking care of the planet, God continues to keep the cycle of life going. We don't. And so worship matters because as as Noah responds to God's favor, God responds to Noah's worship. It's pleasing to him. God's affected by Noah's wholehearted devotion to him. And then he promises, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. I will never again destroy every living thing like I just did. But at the same time, we know that, that the earth is reserved for judgment. He won't use water next time. He'll use fire. He'll purify the earth by burning it up and creating a new heaven and a new earth. That's what 2 Peter chapter 3 says. He says, even though man's heart is full of wickedness from youth it is still possible he's noticing it's still possible that he'll turn repent of his sin and worship his creator and so therefore he shows mercy he doesn't give us what we do deserve but it's not because of man's goodness so all that to say i I just i can't help but think that as we look at the life of noah we see waiting He waits upon the Lord's perfect timing. We see him watching. He's watching to see what God's up to. And at the same time, he's wondering. God's made promises. I wonder how he's going to fulfill them. And I believe that you and I live in a time right now that God's called us to do the same thing. We are not in heaven. We are not in the promised land. But we are in the ark. And the world is in this flood of iniquity. And, and, and the love of many is growing cold towards... There's not a common grace that people are showing one another right now. It's, it's, it's different than any other time in human history. And yet what I would believe we've been called to do is to watch, to wait, to be sober and vigilant, realizing that the days are evil, and to remember that Jesus promised that he would come again... And so to be ready for him to call us out of the ark. To call us out of this world. To call us to be up with him. But at the same time to be watching those that he's working in their hearts. And call them not to come to church. Not to live better and do better. Call them to do what we've been a part of. To to repent of our sin and to believe Jesus. And to follow him until he returns. You know, I've had so many people ask me, what do you think God's up to? And, and I believe that he's preparing the world to take the Christians out and to judge the world. He's preparing the world for judgment. And, and I believe it's coming sooner than later. That it's coming now. And so my question is, are you really watching? Are you really waiting? Are you really preparing your heart? Are you worshiping in the midst of this? Because I believe that as we wait, and as we watch, and as we wonder at God, sit still in his presence, and as we worship and we give him of our all, he's going to provide, and then he's going to call us home. And as we do those W's that I've said a million times already, that people are going to watch, and they're going to wonder, and they're going to ask, why are you worshiping God? Don't you see how bad things are? And you'll be able to say, yeah, but my hope's not here. And they're going to want to go with. They're going to ask, how can I go with? How can I be saved? How can I have the hope that you have? And at that point, you just tell them all the ABCs of the gospel. God came to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Why don't you come with me? So Lord Jesus, um, thank you for Noah's testimony. Thank you for saving sinners. Thank you. Help us to be thankful in the waiting and in the watching and in the wondering. Help us to wonder, to be in awe of your ways. Help us this week to recount your faithfulness and to just be thankful. To give us give us the ability to be generous and just give to you back the things that you've afforded us. And as we do that and as we worship, Lord, we look forward to your return. Bring us home, Lord. It's hard. But bring many sons to glory with us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.